0: From Humboldt, Iowa, to the gold fields of the Klondike, to the St. Louis World's Fair, all while becoming the greatest wrestler America ever produced. Strap in, people. Today, we're learning about Frank Gotch. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swords. Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Holy heckin' OMG, we are back with another episode of the Pro Wrestling History Nerds. This is Nick Gossard, and I'm here with the alternate dimension cowboy Batman to my alternate dimension garbage man Batman, it's Chago Bronson. You can't
1: rock steady without bebop, and oh, what a cowboy this bebop is today, old
0: chap. I don't know what any of that means, but I'm gonna go with it. I'm gonna be excited, and hopefully you're excited as well, because today we are gonna be talking about possibly the greatest wrestler America ever produced. Apologies to Dan Gable, but it is Frank Gotch. I have spent time
1: in locker rooms on many continents and in many countries, and for many different reasons. As a wrestler, as a professional wrestler, as a jiu-jitsu practitioner, as a mixed martial artist, and one name carries the same reverence across all those artistic sub-genres of martial arts, and that's
0: Gotch. I have talked about him with jujitsu men, with wrestlers, with judo men, Everyone involved in grappling is excited to hear that name. I've also discussed him with women at bars, penguins and stray dogs, and they all had the same reaction, which is to walk away and look confused and slightly concerned at my enthusiasm. Yeah, but
1: you know, the enthusiasm is contagious nonetheless, because I noticed a slight uptick in uh, stray dogs uh, search uh, responses for Gotch before when we announced we were gonna do this episode. Oh,
0: many reviews just, just went bark, 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 bark. Uh, one thing I want to talk about, and also thank you everybody who's been listening to the show. Um, we've been having lots of good feedback, lots of good reviews, and that means a lot to us. So whatever format you're listening to this on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, doing like the hand-cranked uh, you know, uh, old device to be time-specific for the people we talk about, please rate and review. It's not for our egos. It just helps the algorithm to kind of boost our profile and it means a lot to us. And for those of you who might be listening to the first time because we're talking about Frank Gotch, one thing to keep in mind is pro wrestling history is the same thing as pro wrestling lore.
1: It is a... Ethos, it is a, a a universe of of elemental characters, you know, it's a pantheon of of legends larger than life. You know, the the the, the Olympians, right? These are our true heroes and our true villains, and the true stories and the lure that has grown out of those true stories because sometimes.
0: You don't let truth get in the way of a good story, man. Oh, absolutely not. And a wrestler never lets truth get in the way of a good story because you'll hear stories today that you might say, I heard it this way, or I heard that never happened, or I thought this happened. And there's a good chance you did hear that story from somebody who legitimately thought it was true. Some of the stories I may be telling may be out and out falsehoods. I'm just piecing together the best information I have based on who was telling the story what i could find in old articles what i could find in books yeah the next time you want to question the pro
1: wrestling history nerds, you better do your research dot your thesaurus cross your uh rolodex and make sure that your sources are properly uh 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 line what is it source thank you from the peanut gallery you must have sources like my royal self and nick Gossard. this man is an archaeologist of pro wrestling lore and legend and stories you don't know how hard it is to go through these archives man why don't you give them an idea of the sort of
0: research it takes to bring these stories to the people all i want to say is if you want to know how hard it is to research some of these matches google things like vienna greco-roman world championships 1904 and see how much information you find it is We do a lot of work here, but like I said, we're dealing with oral traditions, we're dealing with storytelling traditions, as well as old media, old news clippings, old records. So we're just trying to put together the best version of the story, the most true version that just feels right to us, and that's the story we're gonna present today.
1: And I am excited for the story today, the story of inarguably the most affluent grappler from United States of all time. He's crossed every genre and he is revered in every type of locker room for professional wrestling to professional fighting alike.
0: Frank Alvin Gotch was born in Humboldt, Iowa, April 27th, 1878, according to the engraving on his family tomb. However, there is evidence that he might've been born in 76 or 77, good luck finding his birth certificate at this point.
1: We are having to decipher through very few pieces of evidence. So the fact that we had uh, any tangible definitive date, we're going to have to run with that. I think that's uh, the family tombstone is a wise place to go as the as the deciding vote.
0: So for the sake of conversation, we'll assume the 1878 date is correct. He was born to a pair of German immigrants. And though he wasn't a giant by our standards, his 5'11", 200-ish pound frame was rather large for his day. He was a legit heavyweight for his time. And strong as hell from a life of working on a farm, he took to wrestling like a fish to water. Yes, the farm boy strength, the the
1: phenomenon of the farm boy strength or country strong, as they say, is a true phenomenon when you are young and you are having to do these grueling uh, chores and these grueling duties that also double as really, really vicious exercise, your tendons and your ligaments and your bone density develop in a way that people who are not put under that constant stress, they don't develop those kind of things. You talk about things like grip strength. Muscular endurance, the ability to hold something really tight before you get fatigued. These guys develop it from their environment on a level that people who aren't exposed to those stressors could never could never match.
0: Because keep in mind when you and I work out, it's like, oh, I'm getting kind of tired. I pushed myself a little hard. I wanna make sure I'm not sore tomorrow. I'm going home. When you're an 11 year old on a farm, you don't get to say, but Papa, I am very tired from lifting hay bales because there are no options. It's like, I'm sorry, we have to get these hay bales to the other side of the farm before it freezes. Otherwise we will all starve to death and lose our farm. So your childhood is essentially forced labor to exhaustion. And that's just what life is at that point.
1: And that's why we have summer vacation to this day in the schools. So the kiddos could be home for the harvest and help daddy do the hard work in the yard. And that's what
0: that's what a guy like Gotch came up, came up doing, man. So he had a great, physical labor-athletic base because he didn't really start competing in wrestling until he was 21. He was, you know, a natural athlete. He was involved in the local folk wrestling, getting in trouble, getting in scraps with everybody else. But it wasn't until the age of 21 that he had his first match, which, according to some versions of the story, was the mayor of Humboldt kind of nudging him in that direction, asking him to compete. And right out of the gate, his first match was uh, against a gentleman named Marshall Green. That t- and this match took place on April 2nd, 1899, and Gotch beat him with a stranglehold. Evan Lewis's signature move. Uh, would tell us about a stranglehold. Well, a stranglehold is basically a standing guillotine choke.
1: You have the guy bent over in front of you, your head, your arm wrapped around the back of his neck. And you're pulling your forearm up on his far side carotid artery and on his throat, on his trachea. And it's a really devastating maneuver, especially when you talk about a time when people were not educated to what they were seeing or the guys in the ring weren't educated in what they were defending.
0: Exactly. And we've discussed that hold before while talking about Evan Lewis. If you watch those first couple of years of UFC, when... Pulling guard and a guillotine choke was essentially a Mortal Kombat fatality because nobody knew how to defend it. And if you don't know how to defend it, you're going to sleep if you're not tapping out. Yeah, the, the guillotine choke is one of the most effective finishes
1: in mixed martial arts history. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I can guarantee it is one of the five, if not higher than that, most successful submission finishes in the history of the UFC, I can absolutely guarantee that.
0: Gosh ran through all the local competitors, all the local wrestlers, and was looking strong, looking unbeatable in his hometown until he ran smack dab into a traveling furniture salesman from Omaha named Dan Stewart. And if you're wondering, boy, what what, what challenge could a traveling furniture sale from Omaha present to him? Well, that wasn't his real name. The traveling salesman's real name was Dan McLeod, who had beaten Martin Farmer Burns for the title almost two years previous. So what we have here is one of my favorite things is the old Carney scams of legitimate grappling where the fucking American champion was going to a a small town in Iowa under a fake name so he could place bets on himself or have a friend place a bet on him while he challenged the local tough guy. Never bet against the traveling
1: furniture salesman from Omaha. That is the thing we have learned here on Pro Wrestling History Nerds from the territory days.
0: The oldest carny trick in the book it appears But despite being the world champion and a high-level, hugely talented wrestler, it took two hours for McLeod to put away Gotch. And McLeod was impressed enough to leave him his business card, revealing his true identity. That is a major, major uh, indicator to the
1: level of respect that young Gotch had earned in that matchup. It it really foreshadows him coming to the inside, and it, it really speaks a lot about what's
0: he's going to transpire in his career yeah because you have to kind of look at things say in a martial art context this is like a very talented white belt giving a black belt everything he could handle before finishing things
1: yeah it's and those guys are very rare and those guys don't come along very often but when they do you it is inarguable to recognize greatness you don't have to watch an entire basketball game of michael jordan to recognize that that is greatness in that medium. Even if you don't watch basketball, same thing with listening to a song. You don't have to listen to the whole song to recognize greatness. And when you're talking about greatness in fighting and in grappling, he obviously didn't take long to recognize the greatness in Gotch.
0: It makes me think about when I took my first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class. I didn't say that I'd been doing submission wrestling for about three and a half, four years at that point. I just went into the introductory class, and at the end of the introductory class, the instructor wanted to roll, you know, to 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 grapple with. All the intro students to kind of show them how things work. And I went up against the instructor, and he clearly wasn't taking anyone lightly because, you know, you don't, if you lose to a, some schmuck coming in for an intro class, it kind of puts a dent in who you are as a person and how you present your product. And I gave him like a solid five minutes before he caught me with that arm bar. And a lot of that came from me just not really being honest about my background.
1: Yeah, it's, a, you know, it's as old as the hills, as they say, when you talk about the the scam of the the era that we are discussing, the gotch era, because it really was the Wild West. It was I'm the toughest guy in the room, except we're not dealing with life or death gunslinging. You can live to fight another day. So guys were working with that. They were setting it up. They were setting themselves up as fall guys to make money on the other end. They were
0: working the angles and it was all about making money. Many years later, uh, March 21st, 1954 to be specific, one of the wrestlers who was involved in that show uh, was quoted as saying, in a report written by Joseph Carroll Marsh and printed in the Des Moines Register, he said the following, I managed Gotch for many years during his climb to the championship. I saw him in his greatest matches, but I would have given more to have seen his street match with Dan McLeod than any match he wrestled afterwards.
1: That is about as high a praise
0: as one can receive, you know? And there's a saying, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And that described Gotch's next match because his next match took place during a challenge put out by Martin Farmer Burns, who had beaten Evan Lewis for the title, passed it along to Dan McLeod, but was still, even in his late 30s, an incredibly high level submission grappler.
1: Yeah, and also someone who has used the trick of going into another territory coming in as Farmer Burns, one of the first gimmicks we could track down and looking like a, you know, a nondescript farmer and then coming and taking out and, and cooking the books on the, on the action on the side
0: at the house and, and taking the carnies for what they were worth. And Gotch, despite being, once again, a novice in wrestling, especially in trained submission wrestling, gave Martin Burns a fairly tough match. It took 11 straight minutes before Burns was able to put him away sometimes
1: a grappler a true grappler who has greatness in their potential is born with what my sensei called the cat in a bucket and you just you think about what a cat does to not get put in a bucket of water and some people just instinctually have that to them and that's one of the first pieces it takes to make a truly exceptional grappler is that there's no name for the technique that you're gonna stop, that that cat's gonna use to stop from going in that bucket of water. But some guys have cat in a bucket and Gotch has shown it here against the the greats of his era while he's relatively novice.
0: And Burns knew what he was dealing with. He saw how impressive Gotch was despite being barely trained, despite being very inexperienced and being a smart man, he realized he needed to invest in this young man. So he invited him to move and train with him.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really smart move on Farmer Burns' part, Burns' part because he realized the potential in this young guy and he saw the next budding star.
0: Yeah, because here's something you know he moved to. Uh, he you know he moved from Humboldt. He moved to train with Farmer Burns, one of the greatest catch wrestlers of the 1800s, a legendary trainer, a legendary manager, and. That's something that people sometimes, you know, you think about wrestling today where it's, you know, it's showbiz, you train for uh, for entertainment. Back then it was training like you were fighting. And Gotch at that point was that local competitor who got a taste for the big stage. But in order to make it to the big stage, you have to move, you have to go to the good training. Kind of like what we see in MMA, boxing, jujitsu, submission wrestling legitimate fight sports unless you're training with a world-class trainer you will never be a world-class fighter yes you
1: have to go where the where the action is as they say and to truly become to to have the options to have the reality unfold in front of you not just with the opportunities to have the matches but to have the access to the training partners and to the level of competition that it takes to become truly great it 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 requires sacrifice of everything else in your life. You have to commit to the path of the warrior. And a lot of guys that have the potential to do it won't do it because of the level of absolute commitment it takes. And Gotch was willing to give that
0: absolute commitment, especially for somebody who did not start wrestling until his early 20s. And we have that weird image of a martial arts master who has to have started training when he was you know, born, you know, somebody who was trained from the point they were five years to be a master at this point. And that is, once again, more legend than it is true. Case in point, and taking a couple decades back in time, somebody like Frank Shamrock, who didn't start doing any combat training until he was also in his early 20s, but he was such a natural athlete, just took to it, so perfectly that he ran through everyone and became a champion within
1: a matter of years. Yeah, or you look at somebody like BJ Penn, who had a very similar rise to greatness, and he did so without what people would consider traditional athletic gifts. He wasn't overly fast, he wasn't overly explosive, but he just had a true genius of combat, and he was able to climb the ranks at an exceptional rate and some guys are just built for this and gotch was one of those guys man
0: yeah one thing you see particularly we definitely see in current mma we see in wrestling we see back in the day during wrestling it dismisses the myth of the martial arts master being someone who trains from a young age and becomes an expert no matter what we see the dismissal of the idea of the you and the karate and taekwondo ads where it's like, even if you're not an athlete and you're kind of meek, take karate and you too can stand up to your bullies. That's not true at all. You have to have a certain sense of competition. You have to have a certain amount of determination. You have to have a certain amount of physical gifts to get to those high levels. And those are things you unfortunately can't really teach, especially as an adult. You know that sense of competition that like oh you son of a bitch you got me well i'm gonna fucking get you next time motherfucker yeah, and yeah and that's more important than learning to sit in your horse stance throw throw reverse punches like a shaolin monk for six months
1: yeah the the most important moment in my progression as a fighter was after my first loss to hector carrillo he had caught me with such a perfect right hand in the opening exchange in the fight. It broke my eye orbital, it broke my nose, it ruptured my eardrum from the damage it did on the inside of my sinus cavity going out the side of my face. And I dropped to a knee, I took that shot and I charged him into the fence. He ultimately won the match, but Rampage took me aside after that, after I had come out of the emergency room and he said, now, this is, we'd been training partners for five years. I was deep purple belt. He said, now I know, that you truly have what it takes to be a champion because the fortitude and the mentality to take someone's best shot and turn that into motivation to come forward is the thing that determines whether you truly make it as a championship fighter or not. Because plenty of guys are athletic enough and they can be a front runner and they can lead from the front when they're not truly challenged. But when you face deep water, how do you respond? And very few guys are wired like that and gotch absolutely thrived because he was wired like that.
0: Um, I had a similar situation. We were getting uh, Ultimate Fighter season three uh, contestant Mike Nichols ready for a fight. We were doing a drill where you put the person against the fence and you're just trying to take them down and they have to circle out and then they get a fresh person on them. And I stepped over, I had a body lock, I'm pulling him down slowly. He managed to push off and off my chin and throw a short elbow. Missed my headgear entirely, corner of the eye, again, fractured my eye socket, yeah. my orbital, just like you were described. Flash knockout, I'm down. I hear often the, the watery distance are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I get up. I couldn't see out of my right eye. I assumed it was full of blood and I just go after him. And, you know, he's a pal, so he was ready to fucking do. So we're just bombing on each other, like more, like a hockey fight, point blank until the bell rang. I turn around, I pull my headgear off and said, how bad am I cut? I hear everybody, because I looked like sloth from the Goonies. My right eye was completely swelled shut. It was, you know, I I could lift it up and peek out of it like it was yeah. an eye patch, like a meat eye patch. And yeah, it's like, I know you're not trying to like sound like Nick's the toughest guy in the world, but I know most people would have just been like, I'm done, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go lie down now, not get up and keep throwing punches. Like, well, I have one good eye, fuck it, let's do this thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, the wiring that it takes to come forward when you are doing permanent damage to yourself is truly something that you and I share, my friend
0: and we both in that sense as tough as we might be and could have been and have been in the past neither of us hold a candle to frank gotch
1: yeah this is the the legend uh, when it when you talk about a man who's a human wood chipper he stepped
0: in with burns burns started training him he became an amazing catch wrestler he became famous for his toe hold submission uh, describe a toe hold to me
1: essentially you're going to take the ankle and you are going to isolate it and trap it and then you are going to put a rotational pressure up and a it's almost like the shape of a what do you call that like a hurricane the way you would rotate the wind in a hurricane you you give that rotational pressure transverse plane of motion and and it creates so much damage because it won't depending on how the leg is impinged further down on the shin and then on the quad you could do as much damage to the knee as you could with the ankle with that hold it is really devastating maneuver and people barely understand how to defend leg submissions today i can imagine how absolutely devastating that was at that time
0: and some wrestling fans may be picturing kurt angle's finisher yes which was a, an ankle lock his primary and frank Gotch's primary way to set it up was if you had the person down turtled on all fours because keep in mind cash wrestling wasn't primarily submissions You were trying to put their shoulders on the mat you were still trying to pin them submission was just another way to finish things so he would set it up while the person's turtled to get them in that ankle lock and start turning them because if they don't give up to the submission chances are while defending it both their shoulder blades are going to hit the canvas thus ending the fall
1: yeah it's a really really effective what we would call a funnel technique because you're funneling your opponent into multiple bad options. You're creating that checkmate scenario and it's really, really brilliant strategy for the time because no one thinking about using positional grappling like pinning your opponent's shoulders to the mat to set up a submission opportunity is really ahead of its time here. And this is one of the first first grapplers we saw in our research use submissions in this
0: sort of new way. And it's important to go over that strategy of using the toehold to turn somebody into a pin because that will, this is what we call foreshadowing, it's going to pay off huge dividends for him years down the road. And he competed nonstop, winning most of his matches. The most unexpected loss early in his career was to Oscar Wasom, or Wasom, I'm not sure on the pronunciation, a St. Louis champion on March 27th, 1901. 500 fans showed up to watch at Turner Hall in Burlington, Iowa. It was a two out of three match and Oscar won the first fall in half an hour. According to the St. Louis Republic, Gotch won the second fall by a fluke in four minutes. I'm not sure what that means. I kind of assume it was just the local sports paper blowing up the local boy, not giving Gotch any credit to make sure everyone knew how tough the local guy was. And then Wassum came out and he won the third fall in 26 minutes and challenged Farmer Burns. Wassum of course did not beat Farmer Burns and this is where I start wondering how legitimate this match might have been.
1: Yeah, my carny senses are tingling as well. Spider-Man meme, we're pointing at each other cuz I have the same same thought you do on this on this. I as soon as I hear that this local guy gets this fall and then they're they're burying the second fall where he gets where he gives up the return fall in four minutes, and then he gets him again to get Gotch twice. Once, I can believe it, twice, and then it's just oh so convenient that it sets up the match with Farmer Burns, his mentor, Gotch's
0: mentor. It it, it books a little too pretty for my taste, darling. Agreed, agreed, because Blossom was a decent wrestler, but never great, never a big star, and he was smaller than Gotch. My guess is that Gotch was acting as the policeman, or the gatekeeper, or whatever term we want to go with it, where he would put over the top contender so that the big fight against Burns would draw double the box office that might have been. I mean, there is the possibility that it was a shoot. There is a possibility it was legit competition, and Burns was just using Gotch as the gatekeeper to pick the flies off of his matches. Because keep in mind, birds was in his late thirties, and this is nineteen hundred, late thirties, not twenty twenty, late thirties. Yeah, it was a different, uh, different way to age back in those days. So he could have just been using Gotch to keep the unworthy opponents away when he knew he had limited matches left in his career.
1: Yeah, and I think I think to a certain extent, either way, whether he was doing that in more of a working sense or a shoot sense, it it, it served the same function because he's. He's in the the twilight of his career because, like you said, this is 1890s, right? These, this is almost 40 back then. This is incredible to even you know he he's halfway beating the odds of just being a line, let alone being the top grappler and wrestler of his era. He needed somebody to vet the competition for him, and I have no doubt that any local kid who could create a good draw and a good local presence would be a an, a prime target to do a work with gotch so it makes total sense to me that he would have him work as the gatekeeper
0: and wasom continued his mediocre mid-card local level wrestling career until 1912 when he actually was training with gotch and burns for his retirement match against dr roller and then he disappeared from history and legends on april 22nd 1901 he took on jay crow of omaha who was much bigger than him 40 pounds bigger to be specific and that's a lot of weight to give up in a grappling match. Yeah, we told you about
1: those furniture movers from Omaha too. Those pesky guys keep popping up, but uh, you know you're gonna have you're gonna have trouble anytime you're going up against a guy with that much of a weight advantage.
0: That's that's for sure. And whether it was the motivation of a bigger opponent needing to redeem himself off of that loss or just wanting the money, he blew through Crow in two straight falls to win the $100 guarantee and 100% of the gate.
1: That is a great deal. I wanna know who did his, who did what did Farmer Burns get out of this? Cause didn't Farmer Burns book this thing? I wanna
0: know what he was taking off the top. I'm sure he got a percentage off of being his trainer and manager. And you, know, you keep up, keep in mind, that is a lot of money for those days. That is a lot of money for those days. 100% of the gate today would be millions. Yeah, I can't even imagine any
1: performer in any artistic medium being able to command that level of a payday. That is really incredible when you, when you think about it in modern terms. 100% of the gate plus a guarantee, that's pretty awesome.
0: And yet, now on his way to becoming a big grappling star, he decided to take a rather strange turn. He decided to take a rather strange turn and headed off to the Klondike during the Gold Rush.
1: I Well, you know, you, you can't fault a man for having the spirit of adventure in his veins, but I, I wonder what kind of mischief he was going to get into up there up in the old Alaskan gold front.
0: And this is a period in his life that is hard to verify fact from fiction, from legend. It's it's as much folklore as it is history. Depending on who tells the tale, Gotch went up to take advantage of the waning era of the gold rush and didn't want to use his real name. He went up there under the name Frank Kennedy. According to him, he wanted to just pan for gold, and didn't want to get in trouble with the local tough guys who would challenge a famous grappler such as himself. Yeah, he just decided the professional wrestling life, the glamour and glory of
1: competition was no longer for him, and he was going to jump on the gold rush, as they say, and he relocated and took a new name as just an average Joe prospecting for a fortune.
0: And while that is the story he told and others have told, others and... Kind of feels true to myself as he went up under a fake name to take advantage of the waning era of the gold rush and used a fake name to swindle marks who would bet against him in wrestling matches against the local toughs. And keep in mind, news traveled very slowly in 1901, 1902, so him and his team were able to write most likely exaggerated accounts of his adventures that would go down to the mainland press. So
1: you're insinuating that a professional grappler who is trained by someone with Carny background and experiences in their in their bag of tricks decided to go up to where people were pulling money out of the earth and try to swindle the marks out of a hard-earned nugget of gold.
0: I'm I'm kind of suggesting it might be the case. Yeah. And yeah. even under those circumstances, this was an insanely risky thing to do. Because keep in mind, the gold rush really had peaked a few years previous. There wasn't really a lot of money to be made unless you already owned a stake. He went up there and was literally sifting gold dust out of sand for somebody else's claim. That doesn't sound like the strategy of somebody with as much business smarts as God showed throughout his life. And even at this point, going up to the Yukon was incredibly dangerous. During the Klondike Gold Rush, an estimated 20% of prospectors who went didn't make it back alive.
1: Yeah. And I would say that a lot more than that happened on the way of even getting up there that didn't even make it all the way up. The entire infrastructure of the waterfront of the city of Seattle was created to facilitate the gold rush. And the stories of I grew up in Seattle and the stories of like the giant seafront cave in during like uh, I don't have the date, but. There was tremendous risk involved in going to the new frontier. It was the last unexplored. You go west and then you
0: go up. And speaking of the water route, again we see the carny swindles where people were lined up selling the shittiest made boats possible for inflated sums to people trying to get up there. Many of them sank. Many of them got shipwrecked and had to be rescued along the uh, Yukon coast, and led to people like. Future author Jack London, who had a great boat, was an experienced captain along those areas and made a fortune. Despite the horrific risks, we're talking about disease, we're talking about malnutrition, we're talking about perspective, we're talking about possible financial ruin. Keep in mind, it cost about $25,000 in today's money to get equipped and to get up there. He took that risk. This is a place where there is a area in that where by the gold mines called dead horse gulch, because it was literally filled with the corpses of horses that fell off the trail. This was a very dangerous risk to take, whether it was for gold or if it was for uh, grappling glory. These were big risks in the state. This would be a big risk today. And again, depending on which version you read, he went up under the name Frank Kennedy to avoid trouble with tough guys at mining camps or he was running a scam. But either way, he got into a scuffle with some local dickhead, and he threw him three times in the tent bar. The miners were surprised that the quiet, meek guy named Kennedy could actually fight. Word spread, which led to Billy Murdoch, the best wrestler in the the camp, to challenge him. Gotch beat him and pocketed the $500 that was put up for the match. And other challenges followed. There were two lightweights down the creek, Riley and Murphy, who heard about this, and put up $2,500. They pushed their bargain hard and Kennedy agreed to throw them both twice in an hour and he did it in half that time. Yeah,
1: you're dealing with a shark and these guys have no idea how badly they're about to get fleeced because you're talking about one of the most dangerous men in the world at the time in his prime, hungry and looking to take, take these guys for everything he can.
0: And that's what he did. He was beating miners who had come from camp versus, over camp over camp to challenge him but Frank Kennedy uh, just kept on looking for gold on Brown's claim, the man who hired him, just sifting for gold through the day and he would just let everybody else spread the word about how tough he was. And down in Dawson, which was the main mining camp of the time, there was a huge headline that a wrestler would post $2,500 for a three fall match with Kennedy. The young, quotation marks, miner, he rushed right down the creek, took the money out of his pocket and covered the purse. The Dawson paper predicted the downfall of Kennedy. This local tough guy miner. who is he? Nobody's heard of him. He's clearly going to get his ass handed to him by the local champion. It was so certain in everybody's mind that the Klondike paper boasted of only one better taking Kennedy's side, and I have a feeling it was either Kennedy himself or a close friend. Money went up freely on White, and the next day's paper said White was like wax in Kennedy's grip.
1: That is... Really, really, really fantastic work in a territory. He came in, he let the people and the word of mouth build. He knew exactly when to stoke the fires and when to step off. And he's generated all of this interest and all
0: of this opportunity. And now he's about to fleece this whole town. I mean, even with this match alone, he won. He won three falls in 18 minutes. And between the purse, the bedding and the gate, he walked away with $8,000. and still kept his identity secret because he could see bigger paydays coming. I wonder how they paid that.
1: Was it partly nugget, partly like note? What did he what did he do to receive payment on that? Did he have like a satchel of gold that he took home after the fight? How do they how do they measure
0: that? Did they just throw gold on a scale? I wish I knew because, you know, you have to think it probably was in gold form and that would be a lot of gold. Yeah, that would be awesome too. (laughs) The champion of Alaska was Silas Archer, and Frank Kennedy, having thrown the next to best man, Silas Archer, the champion, became interested, but he declared he wouldn't wrestle for less than $5,000, and that suited Frank Kennedy just fine. The $5,000 was put up and quickly doubled, and Archer started maybe getting a little nervous. However, the local paper said that he would surely win, and he felt a lot better about that. The winner was to get a single fall. It was just a one fall match. And Archer was not alone in his sentiment and his confidence. Would be with the local pride and loyalty to their champion, the miners from every field in the Klondike came down to the old Savoy Theater on the night of August 13th, and every man came with a bag of gold dust in his hip pocket, ready to bet on the champ.
1: What a perfect storm of creating a scenario where you are gonna be able to, I mean, Guy Ritchie could not have written this better It's a snatch reference. This time I remember the movie. You did it. Yes, 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 yes. But working the angle, getting everybody in the room to believe one thing, the art of being a worker is getting someone to lean on a pillar of truth. And the harder they lean on it, the more impactful it is when you take it away. And that's what he did here. Every single person in this town is leaning on the truth that their local boy done good is gonna take care of this, this upstart and he's gonna take this whole town for, I am I, so excited for
0: this. And when it was all said and done, the local paper said that more money was bet on this contest than on any other wrestling match that ever took place in the world. Most likely hyperbole, but it definitely was in the top couple percentile, especially when the miners came and paid $1 to fight for standing room as close to the ring as possible. And Kennedy came out aggressive and 17 and a half minutes later pushed Archer's shoulder blades to the mat Boom, he won between the purse, the side bets, and gate receipts, $18,600 in early 1900s money.
1: I, I don't even know how much money that is, but that just sounds incredible. And I can just imagine what the collective air being let out of that room must have been like when his shoulders were pinned to the mat. And anybody, if there had been a couple guys in the house that had actually bet on Gotch, how, how you, you, there's like three people just yes
0: everyone else is just like crying in their beer oh it's beautiful and this is the type of move we see from kennedy throughout his career always going for the biggest challenge and the biggest paydays he was very smart in that regard one way he wasn't very smart was in the final uh, move he made before leaving the Klondike. Before leaving Dawson, Gotch fought an experienced boxer named Frank Paddy Slavin. He was an Australian boxer who came to the Yukon to make his fortune. Kennedy put up $1,000 backing his fighting abilities, and Slavin agreed to the terms of a 15 round bare knuckle Marquis of Queensberry rules match, predicting a victory and unafraid of the possibilities of this hotshot wrestler who was making a name for himself.
1: Well, I don't know what the finish is gonna be on this upcoming boxing match, but it really makes me wonder what Gotch's motivations were. Was it hubris? Did he really think he could beat a boxer in 15 rounds? He seems far too savvy a promoter and businessman to fall for something like that. I gotta think that my carny senses
0: are tingling, old man. Well, this is one where it definitely was hubris because Slavin agreed, knowing full good and well that Kennedy could be a ringer, and he was a ringer in the wrestling business, not so much in boxing. They went out each other on September 25th at the Savoy Theater again, and Slavin dominated him. Sold out crowd, lots of money on the line, lots of betting, and the crowd, hoping to see something spectacular, hoping to see Frank Kennedy reveal a boxing skill set that had been unseen up until this point. Maybe he was as good a boxer as he was a wrestler. Holy crap, is this gonna be something? It was not. It was a massacre. After two rounds of an absolute beating, uh, Kennedy disqualified himself by throwing his opponent out of the ring. The audience was not very happy with those results. Gotch was quoted later on discussing his boxing match with Slavin saying, after I wrestled down in the Klondike, the champion for $11,000 a side in Dawson City, the boys up there beginning to think I could do anything. They <laughs> They matched me to fight Frank Slavin, who was in Alaska at the time. Well, I trained hard for the match, and we fought before a packed house, the miners paying their way in and making their bets with gold dust fresh from the pan. Slavin and I had a terrific tilt. The police stopped it in the seventh round. At least that's what they told me afterwards. Say, do you know that during those seven rounds, Slavin hit me 300 times, and I don't believe he missed me once.
1: It's awesome.
0: The following day, the Daily Klondike Nugget, the paper in the area, uh, reported that the referee had halted the action after the second round had ended. Slavin had punched Gotch as they were separating from the break, and Gotch quickly reacted by downing the fighter from Australia. The referee ended the bout. Um, Another recollection by Joe Carroll Marsh in 1915 he said that. The bout lasted three rounds and affirmed that Slavin's fistic skills eclipsed out of the future world champion. So we're seeing a lot of different versions of the story, but everybody agreed to one thing, Gotch bit off more than he could chew and paid the price.
1: Yeah, well, I'm interested to know what his purse was that night because I can't imagine somebody who has built his career on creating scenarios where he's got somebody in there that doesn't realize how good he is he's got to be very self-aware about how good he is and that that's not his skill set. Boxing is not his world. And I I mean, I do understand that the kind of guy that's wired like that is the kind of guy that would go fight a professional boxer when he doesn't have the professional boxer's training because you have
0: to have that war again, the, the double edge of that sword of that warrior spirit. Exactly. And it's a combination of the warrior spirit and having everybody blowing smoke up at his ass that he could beat anyone under any rules. And you may think like, oh boy, if you think you're athletic, you might be able to translate skills over to a different combat sport. That is not the case. Uh, My primary background before I got into grappling was Muay Thai, my first and primary love in the fighting sport. And a couple of times I tried my hand at boxing. And as good as my hands were from Muay Thai and MMA training, I got my ass lit up every single time because, Boxing is a different game from MMA. It's a different game from kickboxing. It's a different game from wrestling. Your body is trained to do different things in a different way, no matter how much it looks similar to a layman.
1: Yeah, and it is vastly different when you talk about the overlap and the gaps between the two, the body movement to defend punching in boxing, because you don't have the variables of kicks. You don't have the variables of grappling. So you... Ingrain these muscle memory responses. Like if you roll under a hook in a, in the manner that you would in a traditional boxing match, that is a technique that can get your head kicked off or oh, get yeah. you taken down really hard. But because it is a specific technique to boxing, almost the more trained you are, the worse you are served by that instinct.
0: Gotch left the Klondike two months later feeling a sincere respect for the sporting public of Alaska and Canada. In spite of their heavy losses, the people bade farewell to the young man who had defeated their champions and veterans and tough guys and wished him well, according to Gotch. Gotch went back to Humble, leaving a quiet life again, but his advice to the wrestlers who seek financial assistance is, go to the Klondike and stay six months. Most likely a lot of this is bullshit because there wasn't really much room for mining claims at the point in the gold rush. He was working on somebody else's claim, washing gold dust out of the river sand, being a world champion level wrestler at that point, steamrolling just a bunch of local tough guys. Nothing about this feels like it's on the up and up. But despite it being a scam, specifically because it was a scam, He cleaned up, Uh, depending on who told the tale and what point he came back with a fortune, anywhere between 30,000 and a million dollars. Listen to our episode on Carnival Wrestling to hear one version that is completely insane.
1: Yeah, regardless of what the total number is and that number may never be able to be proven, he cleaned up an entire mining community. He took this entire gold this entire area that was infrastructure was built on pulling wealth out of the ground. He took these guys, these drunk, you know, aggressive. These guys are bottled up in the middle of the winter, nowhere to go in Alaska. They got nothing else going on. Give them some really, really stiff beer and get them betting on fights. And, and I want to know, did they ever find out that his real name was Gotch and who he really was or did he get out of there as Kennedy?
0: As far as I can find, he got out of there under the name Frank Kennedy. Nobody who wasn't in on it knew who he was for sure. And while in the Klondike, he became friends with wrestler Ole Marsh, or he went up with uh, Marsh to conspire to begin with, depending on who's telling the story. Marsh returned to the States with Gotch and toured with him in Burns. The scam would be for Ole Marsh, dressed as a local goofball, to come out of the crowd to answer Burns's farmer's challenge in every town they stopped by. He'd put on one hell of a match, lasting the 10 minutes, pocketing the $25 that Marsh would win, and then revealing his true identity to the crowd. It was like a work of a shoot of a work to build up Marsh's reputation for matches while still keeping Burns looking strong. So essentially, The plant in the crowd had become so
1: old hat that they were able to do a work angle off of the plant in the crowd and be like,
0: surprise, I'm a plant in the crowd. Exactly, and they did that town after town after town to make sure everybody knew that this guy was the equal of Farmer Burns, but keeping Farmer Burns still looking untouchable because, hey, this was all his operation to begin with.
1: You got to keep your top guys strong and you got to get your young, up and coming baby face over and it looks like they were doing both.
0: And during all this, Gotch went on a competitive rampage through all comers and was, was on a collision course with the American heavyweight champion Tom Jenkins. On August 19th, 1903, Gotch challenged Jenkins after a match with Oli Marsh who he had thrown three times in one hour to win a $500 purse, legit or not, it got attention. And after a few months off, Gotch took on two wrestlers in one night, winning $800 on September 3rd, 1903. Next up was John Berg, a champion wrestler and powerlifter. Then he went up against Duncan McMillan, who he won nearly $4,000 between the two matches with the purse, the gate, the side bending. And after that, he had what was most likely a series of worked matches against Martin Farmer Burns, his trainer, clearly uh, probably not on the up and up. Earlier in his career, as we discussed, Gotch put over Burns' opponents so that Burns' matches could be big money events. And it kind of seems like Farmer Burns started returning the favor around this point.
1: Yeah, they they had passed one another in the position of top guy and who was the most reasonable top draw. And I credit Farmer Burns for just being a hell of a worker and a promoter mind, man. This whole run that he had of recognizing this guy as a talent, bringing him in, having him be your understudy, having him in your gatekeeper, sending him off to learn a new hold and to go fleece the guys, become educated in, in the art of 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 the con, of the long con. He came back, he had perfected it, he got out with still being called Kennedy. I call that a clean getaway. And now he's back and he has earned the right as Farmer Burns has gotten older to become
0: the top guy in the promotion and, and they've switched places. And I give Farmer Burns a lot of credit. He really was the gateway wrestler between the world of legitimate competition and the carny days and what led to be wrestling as entertainment as opposed to competitive sports. He was possibly one of the most important and influential wrestlers in the history of the sport. And moving forward to December 23rd, 1903, we're gonna discuss the most cringe-worthy thing I have read about in a long time, when Gotch took on 6'5", 215 pound Native American wrestler Chief Two Feathers in Bellingham, Washington. People in the area consider Two Feathers to be unbeatable, and he did give Gotch a legitimately tough match. Two Feathers entered the ring wearing a multicolored beaded robe and towered over Gotch. Two Feathers was constantly tossing and slamming Gotch. He could throw him almost at will in the first fall, but Gotch would always stay off his back, and Gotch finally managed to take him down with a scissor hold and used a hammer lock to pin Two Feathers around the 45-minute mark. It took him 45 minutes to put this guy away for the first fall.
1: Yeah, that's, that speaks to the level of Two Feathers conditioning and also his ability, and, and never underestimate the confidence a guy gets for fighting in his hometown.
0: Coming out in the second fall, Two Feathers continued to throw Gotch and nearly had him pinned with a hammerlock himself. Gotch reversed it with a scissor hold and pinned Two Feathers a second time. The match, due to its toughness, size difference, and weird theatrics became legendary as time went by. Stories written later claimed Chief Two Feathers never wrestled again but that's not really true. Um, they did have rematches in 1904 and 1905, despite the myth-making to hype up Gotch towards the end of his career. These stories were not true, and God, I'm hoping this quote isn't true when it was re- reported that Chief Two Feathers said, Gotch, he he, big wrestler, me no match. Whether that was just racism on the part of the storyteller, the Native American wrestler working in character either way i am sorry everybody that i said that out loud
1: i'd like to believe that he was trying to be hilarious but it's hard to gauge what actually happened from that time i think it's probably more like that's oh that's ugly
0: <laughs> it was yeah but it did increase his uh but it did increase the legend of frank gotch having beaten this giant native american with all the 1900 racism and you can probably put behind that, but at long last in early 1904, Gotch was able to meet Tom Jenkins in the ring. Gotch was possibly more aggressive with his career than he was in the ring and would always go for the bigger challenges when it came with a big payday just like this because Jenkins had defeated Farmer Burns for the title in 1897, so there was also a personal motivation for beating the champ. As Emil Clank, one of Gotch's trainers, put it, this match wasn't a scientific wrestling match. It was a rough and tumble encounter. It was the fiercest battle in wrestling history. If I live to be 100 years old, I never expect to see a match struggle the likes of that one between Gotch and Jenkins and Bellingham.
1: Well, Jenkins beat his sensei, and it was his time to redeem his house and regain
0: that honor of being the champion. And going into the ring, Tom Jenkins outweighed Gotch by nearly 20 pounds and this was not a soft 20 pounds. This was an athletic, this was a muscle 20 20 pounds. He was in fantastic condition and he knew that Gotch would be going for leg submissions and so he trained a good strategy to avoid those. Unfortunately, he wasn't paying attention to the rest of Gotch's strategies because Gotch slammed Jenkins four times in a row and then pinned him. The slams clearly knocked him senseless because Jenkins had to be carried to his corner after the first fall for the first break and revived.
1: Wow, that is impressive, especially considering he's doing that to a man with a 20-pound weight advantage.
0: So Jenkins came out with a new strategy for the second fall, cheat like crazy. He went for a stranglehold, which was not allowed in the rules of this match. When Gotch broke free of this attempted submission, Jenkins took a swing at his face many in the audience claimed it would have probably knocked him out had it landed and gotch is no angel you know he had a reputation for being a bit of a dirty player or doing dick moves like shooting for a takedown off of a handshake but this time the ref had to hold gotch back from stomping jenkins's ass
1: yeah it sounds like jenkins really got hurt and he needed to level the playing field a bit after that first fall
0: Jenkins was disqualified, and this was a situation where the title would change hands via DQ. And the press was very vocal about how Jenkins knew he couldn't beat Gotch and was looking for a way out. The title had traded hands in a very disappointing way. The audience wasn't happy. But regardless, Gotch was now champion, and Jenkins showed zero interest in an immediate rematch
1: for his title. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if if he—the better man, he knew—he— had decided that he couldn't beat the guy, so he wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of a clean victory. So he decided to get himself disqualified because on some level of ego, that can feel like some sort of win or you saved face. But clearly, if he didn't want a rematch, he obviously believed that Gotch was better.
0: Later on, Jenkins claimed that Gotch had thumbed his one good eye and he lost his temper but he never really contested the title switch or the loss. Jenkins continued to wrestle solid for another two years, then was semi-retired until 1914, when he was done for good. He went on to teach wrestling at West Point until 1942, when he finally retired at the age of 70. All while this was happening, Europe was being dominated by the Russian lion, George Hackenschmidt. He was a Greco-Roman wrestling champion, most likely the strongest man alive at the time, and was undefeated in the ring for many years. Gotch, with his thirst for big challenges and big paydays, wanted to meet him in the ring, and Gotch tried to put it together at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, knowing that literally millions of people would be attending and the box office would be incredible. Hackenschmidt, however, had commitments on those dates in Europe, so Gotch lured Tom Jenkins in for two more matches, beating him both times.
1: Yeah, it's never it's never as satisfying when you have to replace the top guy on what you want to put on the marquee, but it sounds like he he found a suitable replacement even though sound, you know, that story had already been told, but I mean, how would you compare the matchup in terms of press and build-up of a Gotch
0: and a HackenSchmidt? Um, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, would be it would be Clay versus Liston. It's There was really nothing that would have been bigger for the World's Fair than the greatest wrestler of Europe versus the greatest wrestler of America. Granted, I'm sure that Jenkins and Gotch made a fortune. I'm sure the audience had no problem with what they saw, but it just wasn't what it could have been. And I know that ain't Gotch alive. It wasn't what he wanted, it wasn't the The accolades, the accomplishment that he was hoping to get out of it.
1: He's a big game hunter, man. He has been his entire career. He built his career on going after dragons that no one thought he was big enough to slay. And he did it time and time again. And it, I am not surprised at all that he went for the biggest, the biggest payday and the biggest level of competition that he could find. And to try to put that on the biggest stage possible just shows you what a competitor and an entertainer gotch was.
0: In June of 1904, Gotch faced off against Jim Parr, who was an English catch-as-catch-can wrestler whose signature submission was a head scissor hold. A head scissor hold is a submission where you manage to lock a figure four with your legs around the guy's head and squeeze with your legs to cut off the blood from the carotid artery. And a lot of people look at signature submissions in a contemporary pro wrestling setting however a signature submission just means that's the submission you can pull off you're good enough at you can pull it off from anywhere i know guys who can pull off a straight arm bar from any position i know guys who will catch you with a toehold from any position like frank gotch would these are real things so don't read too much into it by thinking it means it's a work
1: yeah it's just like a boxer having a signature punch sometimes even within the category of a specific fighting style, someone will have a true exceptional talent at one specific technique. Some guys can throw a great hook. A lot of people can't throw a great hook. Some guys are just natural triangle guys or whatever that submission is based on your body type and your style. Gotch had always found that he funneled to the ankle where now he's coming across people that are coming at him with different skill sets and different
0: styles. Parr weighed in at 175 pounds against Gotch's 190 when they met in Buffalo, New York, and the strength advantage was obvious. Gotch took Parr down almost immediately, but like many good mat submission wrestlers, he was fine being on the mat. He was fine scrambling for positions, trying to grab limbs. And Parr even secured his scissor submission on Gotch, but Gotch was able to power out of it and hung onto Parr's foot as he did so to grab that toehold.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful stylistic sort of encounter, because the counter to the head scissors creates the opportunity for Gotch's signature hold and going after the ankle.
0: So after catching him with that toehold at the 49 minute mark, that's right, 49 wow. minutes before he was able to get that submission. That is a lot of cardio. And Parr was visibly exhausted after the first fall. So he came out and charged Gotch right out of the gate. Gotch was ready for it, grabbed a body lock and slammed him onto his back for the second fall, thus winning the match.
1: Yes, yeah, so going out in a blaze of glory. I can't, I can't fault the guy for for that attempt because when you feel that your chips are down and you you have a, you know, you're in a hail
0: mary situation. You, I, I give him credit for going for it. Next up was Dan McLeod, the former champion, mm-hmm. quotations furniture salesman from Omaha, who gave Gotch his first taste of defeat years ago. At this point, McLeod was semi-retired while working as a miner, legitimately working as a miner in Vancouver. In Fort Dodge, just outside Vancouver, 4,000 miners crowded the tent to watch the match and erupted in cheers when McLeod won the first fall. It was a nonstop back and forth affair with each wrestler securing single leg takedowns only for the other to wriggle out and escape. The first fall finally ended with McLeod securing that single leg, taking him down, putting his whole weight on it, and just body weight muscle forcing Gotch's shoulders down, no matter how hard Gotch was bridging out of the position. So at the 32-minute mark, Gotch lost his first fall in quite some time. Going into the second fall, the now 44-year-old McLeod looked worse for wear than his 27-year-old adversary. Long matches are not, don't get any easier as you get older, kids. Keep that in mind. And Gotch was attacking hard, but McLeod defended just as hard. It took another 23 minutes for Gotch to finally secure a takedown and put McLeod's shoulders on the canvas
1: that's a that is a definite sign of the war of attrition that a match like this is going to be i'm sure mcleod probably went through his entire energy reserves getting that first fall because to beat a guy like gotch even for one fall is a truly monumental accomplishment and it's going to take everything he got
0: yeah and despite being exhausted mcleod was skilled enough to hold Gotch off for another 26 minutes before being turned on his back with a half nelson and crotch hold this is where we acknowledge that so long as you got the technique, you can keep going even though your body's ready to quit.
1: Yeah, muscle memory is a hell of a thing. And the the experience of a guy like McLeod in his mid 40s back then, I mean, this is a guy who lived his entire life wrestling and on the mats and competing. And he's gonna he's gonna be able to give more and from a deeper reserve than just about anybody else and, and credit to him because that's what, almost an hour for those three falls.
0: And McLeod, who was gracious in victory when they first met, was just as gracious in defeat. He put Gotch over to the crowd and he said, and I quote, I beat him five years ago. I would need a club to do it today.
1: That's <laughs> about, about as high of a compliment as you can get. You know, you say, you know he's tipping his cap.
0: The, the young lion has surpassed, surpassed the, uh, and taken the lead. On November 25th, 1904, Gotch took on Charles Yankee Rogers in Buffalo under mixed rules. Gotch won the coin toss, so he got to choose catch-as-catch-can rules for the first fall. Rogers was a bit bigger and was a fantastic greco roman wrestler, but he was no match for Gotch under catch rules. So he started throwing short elbow strikes at Gotch's face, so he had Rogers down on the on the canvas. He was in a turtle position on all fours. He just started throwing short elbows back at him, trying to uh, trying to make some space.
1: Mm, mm, dirty pull, bad form, and now I don't feel bad when you get one of your joints redirected.
0: Rightfully pissed off, Gotch ducked the final elbow, underhooked the arm, put him in a reverse Nelson, and used that to wrench him to the ground and turn him over at the 43-minute mark to win the first fall. Most accounts claim Rogers' shoulder was dislocated from the Nelson, it might have been dislocated from the fall. Either way, he was in bad shape and going into the second fall, which was Greco-Roman rules. The injured Rogers couldn't do much to Gotch. He would back up into the ropes every time he got a body lock on him and he would continue to foul the champ. Gotch finally got fed up with this and shoved Rogers through the ropes. Rogers said he couldn't continue, so Gotch was awarded the match. Gotch and his cornerman claimed that uh, Rogers faked the injury to get out of what was undoubtedly going to be a legitimate defeat.
1: Yeah, in either way, uh, making a man quit is in some ways more rewarding than beating them flat out because it, it it speaks to the level of psychological dominance that you've imposed. And clearly, Gotch turned it up when he was catching those dirty elbows. And I'm not either way. I'm not surprised because either he turned up, he turned it up and his opponent wanted no part of it, or when he did crank that that Nelson, he dislocated his shoulder. And Greco-Roman is so heavily predicated on your shoulders and your grips and your upper body ability to grab your, your opponent that I can imagine that would be a nightmare to try to continue with a dislocated shoulder.
0: So he went on to spend most of 05 and 06 doing theater tours, carnival shows, working matches against his trainer and longtime friend Martin Burns just doing exhibitions, and his only real noteworthy match of 1906 was against Leo Pardello on November 26th. Gotcha's biographers claim that Pardello was an Italian champion, but I found no evidence of this anywhere, so I feel like it was just them trying to blow this guy up. What is known is that Pardello was well known for being a very dirty competitor. Gotch was able to take him down at will, but Pardello was able to turtle to his hands and knees and started throwing elbows up at Gotch, much like his previous match. It wasn't enough to do any real damage, but Pardello was able to get back to his feet. He slipped from Gotch's grip, turned and threw a punch with the booing, which the booing crowd did not appreciate. Gotch ducked the punch and took him down again. As Gotch worked for a pen, Pardello grabbed his hair and pulled so hard that a clump of hair came out.
1: Yeah, if I'm Gotch at that point, I'm not going to be nice. I think that's the time for the cauliflower shower, you know, you give him the bone saw, a little, little bit of the rough play. If you're going to pull my hair, I have no problem making sure that you need to go see a dentist.
0: And it did get pretty, <laughs> and it did turn into a bad night for Pardello after he pulled his hair because Gotch let go of the half Nelson he was working on and grabbed Pardello's foot and secured the toehold. He cranked fast and hard, and the audience was treated to the sickening snap of the ankle folding in on itself.
1: Yes, well, it's called a receipt in the business these days. If you take a dirty shot on somebody, you are gonna catch a receipt, and it sounds like Gotch was, you know, justified in his actions here.
0: I fully agree, it's violent, and God, can you imagine trying to recover from that type of injury in the early 1900s? And if you're wondering what that injury looks like, YouTube, John Lober toehold and you will uh, see what that looks like when a foot folds in on itself from an ankle lock
1: yeah broken candy cane for those of you that don't have the the stomach to look it up just picture a broken candy cane still in its wrapper and that's what your leg is left like if you try to throw a dirty elbow at a submission specialist the level of gotch
0: However, I do have to give credit where credit is due. Pardello limped his way to his corner and actually came out for the second fall. Clearly on one working leg, he couldn't do much, so he gave up that pin in a matter of seconds.
1: Well, we've talked about the heart of a champion and the heart of a fighter, and clearly he possessed that, but sometimes, you know, that gets in the way of doing the the obviously right and smart thing to do, but I give him credit on that. He he had the fighting spirit to go out there and keep fighting on one leg, but man, that must have sucked. Absolutely.
0: Gotch finished up the year with a questionable pair of matches against Fred Beale. Beale was a skilled but smaller wrestler than Gotch, and according to Gotch, he lost the title when he somehow managed to strike his head on a ring post, allowing Beale to get a quick pin on him when he was dazed. I'm picturing a very pro wrestling, charges in, hits his head on the ring post, looks wonky, schoolboy roll up for the pin. I don't know if that's how it happened. That's how I'm picturing it. But regardless, this unheralded uh, grappler got the title off of Gotch. He of course dropped it back to Gotch almost immediately. I believe it was the next week during a rematch.
1: Sounds a lot like the one-two-three 3 Kid Razor moan angle from Monday Night Raw minus the Moonsault but that is, a, I, that is an absolutely believable way to get a guy over and I think that is brilliant.
0: I mean, well, here's the thing. It does seem fishy, but honestly, anything can happen in a real match. Maybe he just came in overconfident and did something stupid. How many top-level MMA guys have you seen knock themselves out with throws? I mean, Mark Kerr did it. Matt Lindland did it. It happens, especially when you are not taking your opponent seriously and you're so comfortable with your own skill set that sometimes shit can go sideways. Was it a work? Most likely. Maybe he maybe um maybe beal wasn't even in on it maybe he just realized i you know i'm looking too beat i'm looking too unbeatable these days i'm going to drop the belt to this goofball so we can have huge box office receipts for the rematch where i will steamroll him whether he wants it or not there's also the possibility he was playing a long game where he wanted to make himself look beatable the closer he got to securing a match with george hackenschmidt
1: That is entirely possible, especially with the savvy long con skills that he's already displayed. I mean, with what he did and the success he had of that long con up in Alaska, I can only imagine how he would apply a
0: similar strategic template to
1: approaching Hackenschmidt.
0: And whether that was a shoot, a work, a worked a shooted work, however you want to put it, going into 1908, He finally had secured his match against the Russian Lion, George Hackenschmidt. And it was evident that Frank Gotch was at the top of his game, possibly the best wrestler in American history and would be the worthy challenger to George Hackenschmidt's European and world titles. And that's where we're going to leave things for today. Next time we're going to come back and we're going to delve deep into the life and the times and the skills and the matches of George Hackenschmidt, this guy If you're picturing Ivan Drago training sequences from Rocky IV, you're not far off. This guy was an incredible specimen, a legendary wrestler, the strongest man on earth, and worthy of every ounce of respect that he was given. Yes. Will
1: Hackenschmidt hack Gotch to shit, or will Gotch get to say gotcha? Find out next time, nerds.
0: Make sure you're following us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram. In addition to our episodes, I like dropping little side stories of things I find out that don't necessarily fit into the narrative of the podcasts. So we try to put a lot of cool stuff on our social media, but otherwise we'll see you, or I guess hear you. You'll hear us. I don't know how things work, but in two weeks we'll be talking about the Russian lion, George Hackenschmidt.
1: Yes, thank you and good night. Hey!